Hola mi gente, bienvenidos. I'm your host Lore and this is Creepy Chisme. Some stories and info are not suitable for all, especially young children. Listen at your own risk. Hola mi gente, it's your girl Lore here with another episode of Creepy Chisme. How y'all doing? Me? I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) And that's all I'm going to say about that. I hope y'all are enjoying this weather. I am not... Like, people complain about the humidity in Florida, but I don't know. Chicago, it's pretty bad. There was actually one day it felt like 110. I'm not even kidding. And I couldn't catch my breath just walking outside. I want to move to Canada or Alaska. I think that would be like my ideal weather. But even for that, I'm just way too lazy. (laughs) So lately, I've been feeling really inspired Um, In all aspects of my life, in my personal, I am so grateful that I have developed the ability to like pick up on negative humans and situations. And I just stay away from that. I don't have time for that, y'all. I don't have time. But anyway, uh, summer school is almost over and I get a full month to just focus on me. I'm so excited. I want to paint and create, work on me, my health, my mental and physical self. Yeah, it's going to be a good month. Now, I just want to give a shout out to my new followers, my new gente. Hola. I hope you guys enjoy Creepy Chisme and please feel free to give me feedback. I love feedback. I can take y'all. dish it out I can take it also I know I always say send me your stories which I do want you to but also if there's just a topic or something you want to know more about you can just email me or message me and that'll work too at creepy chisme for you that's the number four y-o-u at gmail.com send me whatever I promise I do read them eventually and I don't always respond but just know that I do read them But yeah, just please, just don't send me nudes. (laughs) I don't want to open a dick pic. Please don't do that. Okay, we've got a lot of information in today's story. So let's jump right into it. But before that, y'all know what time it is. It's time for an updater story I've recently heard. So y'all know that I have had my eye on this case, the Delphi, Indiana murders, since it started because I've just had this overwhelming feeling that they are getting so close to solving it or they know something, they're just missing a piece to solve it. That's how I feel. And recently some info has surfaced that honestly makes a lot of sense. Now there have been a few suspects police have had under their radar including one man who, um, through a fake Instagram account, was talking to one of the victims and even had plans to meet with her the day they went missing, which is a giant, huge red flag. But now investigators have released the name of another suspect who they claim has been there 
number one guy since the start, yet nobody's talked about him. And when you guys hear what I have heard, I think you'll agree with me too. So the FBI has stated, or released rather, a search warrant on the property where the girls were found. And now this was almost immediately after the incident. So yeah, the girls were hiking on a trail in a nature preserve, but their bodies were actually found on the property line of a man by the name of Ronald Logan. So earlier on, police were suspicious of Logan. When the girls were found, TV crews came to interview Logan, and really they just wanted to get in there and see what they could see, you know? but also to openly discuss things about the case. Now, Logan was walking crews around his property and to the area where it is assumed the crime took place, but even to this day, no details have ever been released to the public or shared by police in hopes that it won't affect the investigation. Now, Logan was interviewed just three days after the incident, and the FBI states at this point, Ronald Logan had already began lying about his whereabouts the day the girls went missing. Now, because they were found on his property, police, of course, talked to Logan immediately. And he even shared that same story that he shared with police on the TV news station. Almost as if he's clearing his name. But y'all, the second this man starts talking, you can clearly hear the similarity to Down the Hill, the audio clip. Now, a cousin of Logan's claims that he was asked to lie to investigators saying that he drove Ronald to an aquarium to get tropical fish for his fish tank. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, that in itself sounds like a fake alibi, <laughs> but police also believed it to be a fake alibi. Now, Ronald Logan was eventually arrested, but not for anything to do with this case. It was for driving on a suspended license and a DUI. He was arrested on March 13th, 2017. Now, in this search warrant issued by the FBI, one agent writes, I believe there is probable cause to believe that Ronald Logan has committed the crime of murder and evidence of that can be found on Ronald Logan's property. Wow. That's a bold statement, you guys. I wonder what they found. Now, they also mentioned that Ronald's ability to create a false alibi also makes it possible that he knew of or committed the crime. That's also a bold statement. On April 3rd, Logan was sentenced to two years in prison for his probation violations and the DUI. But that turned into house arrest, and I'll explain why in a minute. Now, that FBI agent also describes unknown details of the crime scene and how the two girls were found. You guys, it was brutal, which we all assumed, right? We all assumed that this was brutal. And it had to be because it stated in the search warrant that there were large amounts of blood, which also kind of leads me to believe that they were in fact stabbed to death, not shot to death like some predicted. Now, in this warrant, it also stated that two articles of clothing were missing from the girls. Don't want to think the worst, but I'm thinking the worst. It also looked as though the girls' bodies were moved and staged. Now, this report is from 2017. Why was nothing done? I don't know. Now, Ronald Logan was put on house arrest the last year of his sentence due to the COVID pandemic. Now, I think there were some other medical reasons too, and then he was just fucking old. He was really old. And y'all, in the news interviews, he is like walking around his property. His walk and stance. He's got his hand in his pocket. 
He's walking, kind of limping, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> wow. You know, bridge guy. Very similar to bridge guy. Now, Ronald Logan has never been charged in regards to the girl's murder, and he may never be. This breaks my heart. Logan died in 2020 of COVID. House arrest still got COVID. Oh, well. Now, Indiana police no longer give comments on this case and claim that it's still under investigation. I seriously hope you're not lying. But wow, a made-up alibi. An FBI agent saying, yes, he most likely did this. I have a reason to believe he did this. And also, later in another interview, I saw that a former wife of Ronald Logan said, when she heard that audio clip down the hill, she knew it was Ronald's voice. Now, in his past, he was a very violent man. He had been charged with domestic violence with two ex-wives, and one of the wives also spoke up and said she would not be surprised if he was the one who did it. These are women that spent their lives with this man, saying this. <laughs> Just a wow. See why I had to share this with y'all? Now, I'm, I don't think you can charge a deceased person, but I hope with whatever evidence they had collected or are collecting, or whatever was found on the property, it's enough to put a close on this awful, awful tragedy. So I will keep my eye on that. That came out a few months ago, I think two or three months ago, and I just recently discovered it, but I had been wanting to share it with you guys, and I finally got to. So yeah, I definitely, this is one case that sticks with me, and I truly hope we get to see an end to it before I die. <laughs> okay, mi gente, it's that time. It's time to get... Creepy. Today we take a trip back in time to the late 1800s in the awful tale of America's first serial killer. This is the story of Holmes and his murder castle. Now let me explain before I get into this story. I had been wanting to do this case for many many episodes. I think I did it on my Freaky Friday episodes or uh, talked about it. I've mentioned him before and the reason I haven't gotten to it is because y'all there is so much chisme on this case and I talk about that in the story. You know growing up you hear all these stories and you're like whoa that's crazy but then in researching it wasn't as crazy as I thought it was but it's still crazy if you know what I mean. Let's just get into it. Herman Webster Mudgett was born May 16, 1861, to a devout Methodist family. His father, Levi Horton Mudgett, and his mother, Theodate Page Price. Now, his dad came from a farming background, as well as trading and house painting, so he did a little of everything. His mother stood home and helped raise the children, which was common for the time. There were five kids. There was Ellen, Arthur, Herman, Henry, and Mary. Now, Herman was definitely a mama's boy. Uh-huh. I know what you're thinking, though. Lore, who the hell is Herman Mudgett? Well, that's because you and I know him by a different name, and I'll get to that later. Also, I don't know if because this info comes from so long ago, but a lot of people have changed and made up facts about this, so I hope to do my best in retelling what I've learned in reading and researching on the subject matter, 
But just so you know, there are different stories out there. And by this, I mean, I read that growing up, Herman lived a very privi privileged life. And then I also read he had a rough life. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm going to assume, especially after a few articles, that his upbringing wasn't that great and actually sucked, which also makes more sense as to how he ended up the way he did. But you never know. So anyway, growing up, Herman was a cross-eyed little boy, making him a very easy target for bullies. Now he wasn't the brightest kid, but he did love science. Same here. Not the smartest girl, but I love science. And that played a huge role in his future. And he spent his time doing a lot of science stuff, and he also really like enjoyed making scarecrows for people. Yeah, scarecrows. <laughs> There were some early signs, though, in this little guy that are pretty cliche of a serial killer. On one occasion, Herman was locked in a dark classroom with a skeleton. In an autobiography he wrote later in life, he mentions this incident stating how it was both traumatizing yet fascinating. Another huge red flag was that he loved science, but more than anything, the science of medicine. Young Herman would take animals and play surgery. Why always the innocent, angelic babies? Why? Leave the animals alone. Now his home life was not the greatest. His dad Levi was an alcoholic and he spent a lot of time physically and mentally abusing all five children. I'm also going to assume he abused the wife because if he's an alcoholic and abusive, you know, but I didn't find that fact anywhere. Now let me reassure, there is no public record of this physical abuse or violence towards his kids. But again, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, can you imagine people today? Everything we do is on social media. It's literally documentation of our lives, right? When we die. I mean, shit, babies have their own social media accounts and they can't even read. I've seen pet ones too. Anyway, off topic, sorry. Okay, so yeah, that, that was pretty much what I found about the early life of little Herman Mudgett. He spent the majority of his childhood in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. I forget about New Hampshire a lot. It's way up there, right? Like by, uh, is it up by Maine? Oh gosh, I'm gonna embarrass myself. I'm that American that's really bad at geography. All right, so now age 16, um, Herman graduates from Phillips Exeter Academy and he goes on to do some teaching jobs around Gilmanton and nearby areas. But Herman knew that he wanted to be a doctor if only he could afford it. Because yes, back then medical school cost absolutely nothing what it cost today, but back then it was still like you couldn't afford it if you didn't have money. Now, as my retelling goes on, you're going to notice that from a very young age, he was very sly and good at getting what he wants. So this fucking dude sets his eyes on this beautiful, rich, intelligent, rich and glorious, rich woman named Clara Lovering. Did I mention that she's rich, y'all? Cha-ching. <laughs> well, she's rich, yeah. So they get married in 1878, and two years later, they have a son, Robert Mudgett. And around this time, Herman is like, look, Clara, baby, I can make us more money if I become a doctor. So baby, help me so I can help our family. He probably said some shit like that. <laughs> but the bitch is, woo, she's like, why, yes, Herman, I do declare. Here's my daddy's money. Go live your dream. I'll stay with the boy. So he did. That's amazing. 
<laughs> he got what he wanted. He entered into the University of Vermont in Burlington at age 18, but he wasn't very good at it and he started to fall behind. So after only a year, he leaves that university claiming that, I just don't like that school. Okay, Herman, what's his name? Yeah, Herman, right? <laughs> I was gonna say Henry. And um, so then he goes, to another university in 1882, uh, the University of Michigan, and that's when he starts to study medicine and surgery. Now at this school is where Herman starts to get a little shady. So of course in any medical school, you spend a lot of time dissecting cadavers, right? So here Herman befriends this guy, a professor actually, William James Herdman, who at the time was in charge of like the anatomy department and in charge of getting those cadavers. So back then in the 1880s, tuition at this medical school was about 200 bucks per year, which today would be about $6,000 a year, which is actually really sad because tuition is absolutely insane today. Still couldn't afford it. So not only does he have to pay that amount of money every year, but he's also now got a wife and kid that he's supposed to be taking care of and he has to eat and he can't work because he's in medical school. That takes your life. So he's pretty pissed and not happy. Now all these rich dudes around him going to medical school, having absolutely no financial issues, yet here he is barely holding on trying to take course after course. But he's a driven dude, right? I told you, he's sly, he knows how to get what he wants. So he and this professor were rumored to be grave robbers. So they'd steal bodies and sell them to the university for cadaver dissecting. Now oddly enough, and as taboo as that is, it was pretty common back then. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> That's so sad. Illegal for sure, but the professor kind of just handed over the cash, turned, the, turned his cheek and was like, all right, here's the corpse. Get her ready for my next lab. <laughs> That's so crazy. But Driven Herman didn't stop there. No, 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 no. No, Herman Mudgett started using those recently deceased cadavers to make fraudulent insurance claims. Oh, Herman. So he was collecting a lot more money. Um, and he did this grave robbing thing, insurance fraud thing, to pay the rest of his tuition for the rest of his education. And in June of 1884, just barely, swear just barely, man, they didn't wanna let him graduate. That's how bad he was. He ends up graduating, which actually the university at first, they didn't wanna pass him because he was like the second to last on the class list. Which leads me to think about <laughs> the doctors that graduate medical school that were at the bottom of the list. Anyway. But they did. They passed him. And around this time, his wife Clara and son moved in with him. But his housemates said that Herman was really mean and abusive to Clara. And so eventually she just picked up and left and moved back home. Now the two didn't speak much after she left. So he moves to Moore's Forks, New York, where he falls in love again. But somehow, new girl finds out that he was legally married. So she was like, oh, hell no. And she kicked him to the curb. So during this time, everything is going to shit for poor Herman. His wife left, his girl left. He's not a practicing physician yet. He's broke 
And so something begins to stir in Mr. Herman Mudgett. So he ends up reaching out to an old medical school friend who knew that he was a grave robber and the scheming that he did. And he convinces him that the insurance fraud idea works and is quick money. So he wanted to plot once again to commit a huge insurance fraud because he needed money. At first he planned to find a family, then replace them with corpses make himself the beneficiary and collect the money giving a part to the family. Confusing, I know. And also risky, little too risky in fact, so he changed the plan. Instead of doing the family thing, he would pretend to kill off himself. R.I.P. Herman Webster Mudgett. <laughs> he was cross-eyed, but never blind. He always got what he wanted and barely slid by and passed medical school, but he did the damn thing. R.I.P. Little Herman. I'm going to hell. <laughs> so in order for this to <laughs> So in order for all of this to work, he had some loose ends to tie up. One, he had to get divorced. So he moves down to Philly, Pennsylvania and starts working in a pharmacy. Now I couldn't fact check this anywhere, but the cheesement is while working at the pharmacy, a little boy died taking the wrong dosage of medicine. Now Herman denied that he was responsible, but shortly after this occurred, he booked it. He left town. And in 1886, although still married to Clara, this dude gets married again. <laughs> Shit, I don't even want to get married once anymore. And this dude's married twice. Holy shit. But also, why get married if you're about to magically disappear? Anyway, he married Myrta Belknap. Which, by the way, she was in on it too. She knew what was about to go down. That's why she married him. <laughs> no, I just made that up. Everyone else is making shit up. Why can't I, right? Shortly after he gets married, he sends the divorce papers to Clara. And get this. This bitch, literal trash dude, files for divorce, alleging infidelity on Clara's behalf, not his. However, <laughs> I'm telling you, he thinks he's a genius. And a really awful part of me is like, he kind of is but not for good, you know? You know how like you're a genius for good, genius for bad? He's a genius for complete awfulness. Later, it was discovered that Clara actually never even received the divorce papers and so the divorce actually never went through. So he was married twice, it's crazy. So Mirza and Herman moved to Chicago, the Englewood neighborhood in 1989. They have a baby girl and name her Lucy Theodate Holmes. Yes, Holmes. You see, this time Herman Mudgett married under a new name to avoid being found from the previous shit he had done. His name was now Henry Howard Holmes. So on a trip to Indianapolis, he takes out a life insurance policy on Herman Webster Mudgett and he makes his new wife the beneficiary. Now the policy was for $20,000, which even today was a lot of freaking money, dude. So next he has to find a body to turn in and claim the policy. However, this isn't a very easy task, and he struggles to find a body very similar to his. What the fuck, is he just like digging up corpses? Like, nope, not this one, not too big, too small. Like, what the fuck, dude? Now in his autobiography, Holmes claims that this is when he turned into a monster. 
Over a two-week period, Holmes says after seeing so many bodies, he didn't think of the corpses as human beings, but more so as just profitable objects. Wow. I mean, maybe? Possibly? But I think he's been feeling that way longer than before this incident or scheme. Now, Holmes becomes so obsessed with finding his body that he even becomes suicidal and almost took his own life in front of a policeman. This incident actually sent him to be treated at an insane asylum. And after a very short stay, he leaves, but he's had some time to devise a plan. He'd invite that old medical school friend to come out and visit. So they go to a hotel in Chicago, pours him a drink with a large dose of laudanum, which is a narcotic painkiller containing morphine. This is his friend, y'all. I don't trust anybody, you see? And he has no issue taking his friend's life. For personal gain, the monster's truly alive, fully at this point. So he lays his friend in the hotel tub over ice and Holmes describes in eerie detail looking at his dead friend and how he's happy that he resembles his body type to a T. Greedy ass bastard. Your friend just died and all you can think about is money? Again, another example, this dude is no longer in touch with reality. So he puts his clothing, his shoes, everything of his on the friend, including ID. Then he dumps it off somewhere. Now the $20,000 was then received really quickly after that. So with the money, Holmes purchases this plot of land in Chicago. At first, he opens a barbershop and a drugstore. And then on the upper part of his building, the main living part, he was having it constructed to his liking. Now, this was to be, in his words, his castle. And he knew exactly what he wanted to use this castle for. Now, included in his castle would be new technology, new gadgets, Oh yeah, he's got the money now. And he's going to fulfill his new career, a homicidal maniac. Now, his wife and daughter, they lived in Wilmette, Illinois, which is just out of Chicago. And Holmes spent a lot of time in Chicago at his castle, running his business now. Now, his castle was on the corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Englewood. So the achievement is, that the owners of the building he bought, who Holmes actually worked for, both mysteriously disappeared. Ooh. Right after he purchased the spot. But some say, no way. The previous owners actually lived a very long life after selling and even visited because they lived in the neighborhood. Again, just chisme. <laughs> so Holmes is feeling real good. Things are looking up for him finally. And it's time to put his plans in motion. So he convinces his furniture guy, Wade Warner, to join in on the scheming. Now, Wade would pretend to be an inventor of a glass bending machine. So Wade builds a glass furnace in the basement. And he was going to trick investors and businessmen. So Wade builds him the glass furnace. And then Holmes has Wade write him two checks for small amounts. Later changing the sums to way more money adding them zeros. So he cashed the checks and he had to move rather quickly before Wade Warren would find out. So he invites Wade over and he's like, come on, let's have a drink in the basement. Let's go check out our masterpiece glass furnace. 
And while they're in the basement talking furniture and projects, he convinces him to step in a kiln, which is like an oven to hit things to like um, heat things up. Today, I think they're used for like ceramics, pottery. So imagine just a big oven and Wade walks in and Holmes is like, boom, lock the door, douses him with oil and he turns it on to its highest setting. In his autobiography, he states that in just a short time, nothing was left of his victim, not a single bone. Now don't even think for one second that Holmes' grave digging days were over. They weren't. He had now turned his basement into an underground trade, selling everything from stolen personal items to bones to bodies, even recycling old coffins. Who the fuck is buying this shit, especially from a creepy basement? Now his biggest investors were medical schools. He was a strict businessman too, even claiming to have murdered a doctor who didn't pay him on time. So his plan is pretty much murder the victims upstairs and then sell them downstairs. Again, genius, but a fucked up genius. Now one businessman named Charles Cole was invited to the castle and Holmes' murders had become so routine that he wasn't even thinking straight. He bludgeoned Cole with a lead pipe and severely crushed his skull. After that killing, he realized that the corpse was absolutely useless and not profitable to him, so he had to come up with a new plan, you know, to get his fix of murder, but also profit off of it. So he literally had a gas chamber built into one of the many rooms in his castle. And he would use this approach to get these businessmen to sign him checks and then kill them. Now Holmes has now reached a point where he enjoys torturing his victims. He loved using techniques that wouldn't harm the body, so like the gas or chloroform, which was his absolute favorite. He actually was buying so much chloroform that one pharmacist said he'd sell him about nine bottles a week. And who's to say that he didn't go to another pharmacy, right? Now, let's talk about this castle that Holmes designed. This was not a home. This was solely designed for one reason, to murder all over and everywhere in that building. This wasn't necessarily a loving home. <laughs> Shit, it wasn't that at all, which is why his baby mama lives somewhere else. Now, if you live in Chicago, then you know that a corner building or apartment is freaking huge. So on the lower level, there were five, like uh, five little stores that he rented out. And then above the stores that he rented out were offices, including his office space, as well as a few rooms that he rented out. So upstairs, he had the layout very specific. He could hurt a victim in one room, and be able to move that body through the other rooms to get to a trap door he built in one of the private bathrooms. He would then drop the body into another bathroom below that one, and all of this being done without being seen from the main hallway. So then he'd go down to that bathroom, which was connected to his lab, where he'd dissect or prepare the corpse to sell. But that's not all. He'd then drop the body into a floorless closet in that bathroom, where it would fall onto a platform. And then he'd open a hatch on the floor of the bathroom he was in, which led to a staircase that led to the body on the platform. And from there, he'd slide the corpse off the platform 
into a chute that went straight down into the basement. What the fuck? Like, who comes up with this? Who the fuck built this? Like, who was like, okay, yeah, let's put a staircase leading to a little trap room in the bathroom and not question it. <laughs> it's absolutely insane, you guys. Okay, so the rest of his castle was kind of just laid out in such a way that made no sense whatsoever. Now, the building was only two stories, but he built the third floor as a hotel for guests who were coming into town for the Chicago World Columbian Expo. So the hotel was never actually fully completed, but they still used it. And guests who stayed here were lucky if they ever left. Now Holmes had some rooms set up as gas chambers. Other times he'd sneak in at night through a secret door and chloroform the guests while they slept, then remove them without being seen. Now Holmes even built himself a trunk lined with tar so that he could transport a body to the market without any blood leaking out. I have no words. He devalues these humans so much and he sees them as nothing more than profit that he's now carting them around to sell. Disgusting. And all the while during this, he's still committing life insurance fraud, y'all. He's estimated to have claimed almost a quarter of a million dollars. That is a shit ton of money back then. But not just that, he's also collecting chump change pretty much from these medical schools who are buying the cadavers or murdered victims is what it is. So he meets this guy from Harneman Medical School in Chicago who was a mechanic that they actually trained to prepare corpses for the medical classes. So Holmes is like, dude, come to my castle and show me how to do this so that I could sell these corpses ready to go for these medical schools. So the guy's like, all right. So he hires him. His name was Charles Chapel. Why does no one question this man? That's all I have to say. Why are you preparing bodies in your basement? Like what the hell? <laughs> I guess this just shows us that money really is a powerful thing, makes people really greedy and ugly. Now Chapel taught Holmes how to skin a body perfectly, saw limbs off properly. So Holmes is in murder heaven. I mean, he's literally going to these schools and pretty much giving them the quantity they need. You need 30 corpses? Okay, easy, I gotcha. It ain't no thing for Holmes. He didn't give a shit at all. All about profit. Should I hope today medical schools aren't buying bodies from a resident in town who just so happens to always have what they need? I'm sure there are a lot more protocols, but back then these schools are like, well, we'll take everything you got off your hands. Oh, how terrifying, dude. Those poor students. Can you imagine finding out that the body you dissected for a weekend lab was a murdered woman or man? Jeez Louise. Now it shows on public record that the schools were purchasing the bodies for about 20 to $30. Are you kidding me? Okay, let's see what that is today. So 20 to $30, that's about 640 to $960 per body. Not enough. I mean, I wanna be donated to science, but for some reason, familia, if it comes up, you better be charging well over 10 grand for my body. I'm thick, there's more to work with. <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. But anyway, Holmes, he wanted more. Ay, que malo este hombre. Even though he's profiting left and right here, he wants more. More money, more murder. Nobody knows, but 
I think he wants them both. He wants murder and money. So he builds these two giant vats in the basement. And in one of them, he fills it with acid to dissolve the flesh on the body. In the other, he had bleach to make the bones shine white like a diamond. I've had too much sugar today. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> oh, what's he getting at here? Oh, yes. He and Charles Chapel would then mount the bones on metal wires and sell mounted skeletons. Just like the one little Herman Mudgett was locked in a classroom with. Full circle, y'all. Now, one of these skeletons would sell for around 170 buckaroos. So about, let's see, what is that? Today would be about $5,400. Now, he's making the big bucks now. Oh my god, do you think some of these skeletons are still out there somewhere today? Oh, that's so creepy. I hope that's what they do to my donated body. I want to chill in an anatomy class somewhere. That gives me chills though. So disrespectful to his victims. So it's now 1892 and he's selling bodies, bones, skeletons. He's got money coming in left and right. The hotel, the rentals, the store rentals, the colleges. He is thriving and just murdering left and right, all in his murder castle. So wild. But like any other killer getting away with murder, they always want more, right? Time for something new. So Holmes is feeling pretty damn good and confident. And what does a confident man need? Sexual healing. <laughs> oh my goodness. So now he focuses his attention on female victims specifically. First it was businessmen, a lot of businessmen. Now we got females. Now believe it or not, women were drawn to Senor Holmes. I mean, he was rich and apparently he knew how to talk to the ladies. Not too bad looking either. Yes, El Cabron was still married to Mirta and they had their baby, Lucy, but he didn't care. Now Mirta claims home life was absolutely great. She said that Holmes was a loving, great dad, loved animals, oh, I'm sure, and took care of them. But Holmes, at work, had a wandering eye. And I'm not talking about his crossed eye. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. Okay. What I mean is in his offices and businesses, he hired very beautiful women. Typists, maids, shop associates, just to name a few. Now, around this time, actually, women were joining the workforce. Like, it was new. Every bitch wanted to work. Power to you. And Holmes was all for it. He even started his own ladies' employment agency. A very easy target for female victims now. I hate to say it, but this guy knew what he was doing. An evil genius, I'm telling you. So one day, Holmes meets this guy, Ned Connor, and his wife, who was a beauty named Julia and they had an eight-year-old little girl, and he was super taken with this Julia. He even offered the family a free room above the jewelry store that Ned Connor would now be leasing from him. They also had a 17-year-old girl with them who was, I believe, Ned's sister, and Holmes was like, hey, you want a job? I'll get you a job. So yeah, he's being super nice to the family, but this is Senor Holmes. You're being, he's being nice to you, so you owe him, mm-hmm. So the family was definitely in debt to him, and that's exactly how he wanted it. So Holmes had this fantasy of committing a family murder. Remember, I mentioned that before? And he thought that this would be the one. Now in just a few months, the 17-year-old mysteriously was dead. 
Later, Holmes admitted to the courts that he poisoned her after the girl would not have sex with him. Ugh, he's one of those. Now, after this, Ned and Julia divorced. You know, they were going through some things. And Julia began a love affair with Holmes. Scandaloso. Ay, ay, ay. But even crazier, Julia got pregnant. Ooh, you are in trouble now, Holmes. Mirta's gonna flip a seam with this news. Or would she even find out? Of course not. This is murder castle. Holmes gets rid of Julia. He leaves her bare bones to Charles Chapel to piece together. Later, it was discovered that the eight-year-old little girl was actually buried in the castle's lime pit. Disgusting, this man. Now, I want to clear something up before I move on. Chisme on the street claims that Holmes' murder castle was like this giant funhouse, pero like not too fun at all, except for him. But that was never proven. Before I started researching, I always heard that it was like a giant maze where his victims would be confused and viciously tortured and he played mind games and all that. But really, that's mostly chisme. No one actually knows what the layout exactly was. And other than his office connecting to a few rooms and then trap doors to the basement, that was really it. I mean, he had some crazy stuff in the basement and Charles Chapel is just down there slaving away, putting bones together. I mean, it's still wild no matter what the case, but all chisme. I mean, it's still wild no matter what the true chisme is. So the World Fair starts in Chicago in 1893. And people are coming like flies, and they're looking for places to stay. So, of course, where do they stay? In the Murder Castle Hotel. So Chicago's booming at this time. And during the World Fair, a woman named Minnie Williams shows up. Now, Minnie was the it girl, okay? She was an actress and a locution teacher, which is pretty much articulation. She went to homes looking for a job to his female find me a job thing and she wanted to be a typist como una secretaria but senor holmes wasn't just into minnie's looks oh no 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 he was also into the fact this beautiful woman had 50 grand worth of land in fort worth texas 50 grand and you're trying to be a secretary (laughs) i mean i'm not judging not judging girl but damn So he starts flirting, giving little ojitos, and they start talking, and Mastermind Holmes is like, look, if we fake your death, we could make a lot of cash, baby doll. What do you say? And then Minnie is like, oh, I do declare that sounds mighty fine, but you see, if I die, my sister gets to claim the land instead. Yeah. Well, shit, now what? So, of course, what's he gonna do? Let's get rid of the sister, right? So July 4th, 1893, Holmes picks up the sister who he invited to come stay for the World's Fair. And I mean, it's the World's Fair. Who's gonna turn down that invite, you know? So she comes into town and she's heard nothing but good things from her sister Minnie about Holmes. He picks her up, he takes her to his castle, and he's like, come on, I'll show you where Minnie works. And they go to his office, no one's there, he shuts the door, and the rest is, well, you know. But Mr. Holmes gets greedy, and he invites Minnie on a trip right after that. So they board the train, and off they go. What a bitch, Minnie. Like, that's your sister, that's your blood. 
Oof. Because you know she had to know, right? She She's going to get money from this. Now, on this trip, he poisons Minnie. Holmes don't care who you are. He's going to get you. Now, later, Holmes does confess that Minnie Williams was the one death he regretted. He even went as far to say that he indeed did love her. Now, before she died, he convinced her to sign over that deed on her property to a good friend of his, Alexander Bond who, by the way, didn't exist and was just an alias of Holmes. Now, I couldn't find proof that he received anything from this, but we can only assume that he did. Minnie and her sister were never heard from again, and after telling an aunt in a letter that they were going to travel to Europe with a man named Brother Harry, that was it. Poof. Gone. So, Holmes had killed so many that Chicago actually decided to start a bureau for missing persons because there were tons of missing people. After 1892, hundreds had vanished in Chicago, and that continued to rise every year after. Now, Holmes murdered so many that the bodies started stacking up now. He couldn't sell them fast enough, probably because everyone's buying the new fad hot dogs at the World Fair. But anyway... <laughs> Police got word that Holmes was sketchy and had committed some money fraud. Now, when they got there, they did notice some barrels that Holmes was packaging and getting ready to ship. Hot damn. He's shipping bodies too. Lord Jesus, help this man. So police ask, hey buddy, what's in the jug? And of course, he made up some BS and then off they went. <laughs> they didn't even look in the jugs. Now, Holmes admitted to burning the barrels immediately after the police left, just in case they came back. Whoops, there's been a delay in your shipment. The worst, man. But police had him under their radar at this point, and he started to get nervous. So nervous, in fact, that he actually lit the third floor of the castle on fire. By New Year's, Holmes and a buddy that he was scheming with booked town. His friend's name was Ben Peitzel. Peitzel? I think it's Peitzel. Now, the plan was that they were going to cash in on property from victims. But you see, Holmes insured, insured, <laughs> insured Ben's life for 10000 before they left. Hmm, I wonder why. So the plan was this. Ben would open this office in Philadelphia and have things up and running for a good while. And then Holmes would find a body similar to Ben and claim an accidental death, giving him a new identity and ka-ching, cash in on the insurance policy. Damn, man, this sounds familiar. So September 2nd, 1894, Holmes shows up at the Philadelphia office and kills Ben Peitzel. He bound him, he burned him alive, and later, Holmes admits this doing and felt nothing but only slight remorse, or honestly, I think embarrassed more than anything, claiming people will think, how can one be so heartless and depraved? But then he also goes on to say, quote, the least I can do is spare my reader a recital of the victim's cries for mercy, his prayers, and finally his plea for a more speedy termination of his sufferings, all of which upon me had no effect. End quote. What a fucking asshole. So pretty much he's saying like, this dude is dying. He's crying. He's in pain. He's begging me to end his life. And I feel nothing. 
This is your friend, dude, who's running your office. Again, it just shows what an awful, cold-hearted monster that he is, was. Now, he no longer can view people as humans with purpose anymore, so just, ugh. And the fact that he can do this to people he loves, people he works with, people he helps or who help him, that just, like, literally anyone is replaceable in his life, and that's so sick. But we're not done because this story doesn't end here. So after killing Ben Peitzel, he quickly realizes, oh shit, his wife and kids can claim the life insurance policy. I didn't think this through. So he calls up the wife and he's like, yo, your man's in hiding and it's for good of the family. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to help reunite you guys. So let's start with the kids. So Holmes convinces this woman to let him take her kids. One of the kids, who was eight, was dismembered, burned, and later found stuffed up a chimney at an unknown residence in Indiana. Now the girls, there were two girls, traveled further with Holmes all the way up north to Canada. What's crazy about this is Holmes told the young girls to write letters every day of their trip, and they did, documenting dates, times, places, what they did, what they saw. And of course, he never mailed the letters. He actually ended up keeping them? Not sure why but they were never mailed. So remember that trunk that Holmes had aligned with Tar to take chopped up body parts to sell at the market? Well, he pimped his ride, y'all. He turned that trunk into a portable gas chamber. Yes, I said that correctly. A serial killer's biggest fantasy? <laughs> a portable gas chamber? Ugh. On October 25th, 1894, he made the two little girls get in and, well, you know what happened. Using a tube, he inserted it into the closed trunk through a little hole he had made and connected it to a gas tank. Cruel. So cruel. The young girls were found later, nude inside, leading police investigating to assume possible sexual abuse of the girls as well. Now after this, Holmes rented a property in Burlington, Vermont, where he would then finish his fantasy of a whole family murder and then cash in on all the insurance money. So he wanted to kill Ben's wife, Carrie, her oldest daughter, and a young baby. But before things even took place, the insurance, who had already received word that Ben had died, got very suspicious of the awful death and decided to investigate. So a man named Inspector Gadget, just kidding. <laughs> A man named Frank Gaia was a detective hired to look into who took out the policy to begin with. Dun dun dun! Oh yeah, Frank was good. He was real good. Because he figured out who had bought the policy and where he was at the time. And at the time, Holmes was in Boston. And so, no time was wasted and they arrested him for insurance fraud. Not even thinking that they were arresting Possibly the worst murder ever. So here's the crazy thing, as if all this shit isn't crazy enough. They knew this guy was shady, but not enough evidence to tie him to any other of his crimes. So Ben's body was so burned, they couldn't really identify it. So Holmes is like, okay, look, y'all. Okay, look. I got that body from a local morgue. Ben isn't dead. He's actually off on the run living a really good life. So people go crazy with this. And the paper started talking about Holmes and how he used an already dead body for insurance money. This was viral top news. 
How could somebody do this? Definitely the chisme for a while. So Holmes, of course, goes to prison, and during his stay, he writes his memoir. Now, in his book, he, of course, portrays himself as a great guy and tries to give reason as to why he did what he did. Now, many say it's just a book of lies because he does talk about murdering some people, but that didn't stop people from reading it. Honestly, I'd probably read it too. <laughs> it was a bestseller from its time. But in his book, he admits to, like I said, some of the murders and how he'd fool insurance men. So yeah, he's just spewing all this and police can't really do shit because there's no evidence. They can't just take his word for it. But Detective Frank finds those letters from the two young girls. Boom, evidence. Now with the girls' letters, it eventually led investigators to a home in Toronto, Canada. Buried in the trunk, in the backyard, they find the girls. But also with the letters, it led them to that house in Indiana where the young boy was shoved up a chimney. Now this insurance fraud criminal has now become a sexual predator as well, and eventually a multi-murderer. So what else can they find? Of course they end up at home Chicago building where they discovered all of his secrets. They found a killing vault, lots of bloody women's clothing, and even rotten human remains. Police quickly discover that the building's odd layout was for more than just occupants. No, it was a killing machine with trapdoors, lifts, machines to help him murder his victims. They discover this by finding a very large rope that Holmes would tie around his victim and drop from the top floor to the basement. Investigators even tried to go back and try to find the donated bodies. It was just far too difficult because there were so many. Now they did find a few including the mounted skeleton of Julia. Remember the jewelry store owner's wife? She was displayed in a class at Harneman Medical School. So now they have enough evidence and Holmes was put on trial for murder of Ben and his three young kids. The trial took place in Philadelphia and he was found guilty. Yeah, yeah. Hot damn. Finally. So H.H. Holmes was sentenced to death by hanging. I would have preferred death by gas and fire. You know, give him a taste of his own damn medicine. So this was a very high profile case and the press was all over the damn thing. What you have to understand is this was really the first case of its kind. Here's someone who's murdering for fun, for personal gain, for money. He killed innocent people in awful ways and he built this murder castle to kill who even knows how many victims. In the end, Holmes admitted to 27 murders but the Chicago police believe that number to be well over 200. On May 7th, 1896, Henry Howard Holmes was hung in front of many spectators. His final request was to please bury him under concrete so that nobody could ever take and dissect his body. Shut up. I hope somebody takes and dissects your body. And then I hope somebody burns you, puts you in acid, and then hangs your bones in a museum somewhere with no classification of who you are. Some people deserve it, okay? He deserves it. I hope his last wife really did cash in on his dead body though, right? <laughs> Crazy. Now I know the place in Chicago where Murder Castle stood was demolished very quickly after everything happened. It wouldn't have sold, believe me. And then they built a post office that still sits there today. 
I'm pretty sure it has to be super haunted. <laughs> now, like I said, this happened so long ago that chisme has spread left and right. And maybe we'll never know the full truth, right? Maybe it's worse than we know. Maybe he only killed just a few victims. Either way, Henry Howard Holmes was a vile, cold-hearted abuser. Murderer, schemer, all of the above. And he will always be known in history as such. I hope you guys enjoy learning about the supposed first American serial killer. What a plotting devil. And right here in my home city. I don't want to take much more of your time, but I do want to share some listener messages because I haven't done this in a while. Subscriber Brenda says, Lore, I have been listening since day one and the clarity in your voice makes it easy to not only listen, but also enjoy. Thank you. I don't have a scary story to tell. Ghosts don't seem to like me, but I just wanted to say hello. You don't have to reply. I'm sure you're busy. I do want to say I love your storytelling, especially the leyendas. Can't wait to hear more. Stay creepy, Brenda. P.S. It's okay if you say my name. Oh, shit. Girl, I already said it. <laughs> but thanks. That was really sweet. And I just have to say, a lot of you always add that into your messages. I know you're busy. I am not. <laughs> I'm not that busy. I mean, I am busy most times, but I'm just chilling. I have time to open up my email or messages. To be fair, you will probably get a response faster on Instagram than email or Facebook. So, just a heads up. <laughs> but thank you, Brenda. That was super sweet. And please, never, never feel like you're bothering me. This next one comes from Anonymous. Greetings from Cleveland, Ohio. Ohio. <laughs> well, hello there, Ohio. I recently started listening and... I'm working my way back from the first episode. Ooh, cringe, the first episode. <laughs> I love listening while I'm working, but sometimes I do listen before bed if it's not too late. And if the episode isn't too creepy. I admit, I'm a scaredy cat sometimes. That's okay, I'm a scaredy cat too. <laughs> I just wanted to share an experience I had while listening to your Demon House episode. <gasps> oh, I hate that episode. But it's actually my top episode. <laughs> I was home alone cooking dinner. I heard about the story because I'm a huge Ghost Hunters fan, but I learned more from your episode. While I was listening, someone knocked three times on my garage door that is in my kitchen. At the time, I thought nothing of it and opened it thinking it was my husband, but no one was there. I let it go and continued cooking. About five minutes later, the knocking happened again. This time I didn't open the door, but I did turn off your podcast. The knocks never came back. I did finish the episode the next day at work, but I just thought it was strange. We had some small things happen in our home before that we can't explain, but only a handful and we've lived here like three years. I was just curious to know if you had anything happen while creating that episode. Thanks for taking the time to read. Um, wow, creepy. <laughs> I try to stay away from like the dark spooky like demons or the devil because I have had some bad things happen while doing those episodes. During that episode specifically, I don't remember if it's in the recording, but while recording near my brother's um, back door, next to it, he had like this key holder and he had some keys hung on there and he had this apron that he had received for his birthday. It was like a Ninja Turtle apron, uh, like the chef's apron kind of thing. So um, the apron and a set of keys fell off the holder. Now I do want to say the hooks on the key holder are very U-shaped. So in order for the set of keys or apron to slide off, it's almost impossible. 
And after it happened, his dog would like randomly growl at the back door and still does it today sometimes. And it really freaks me out. <laughs> Just claim no negativity and be firm. That, that always seems to help me. But sorry if I scared you, buddy. <laughs> All right, mi gente, I'm going to stop there. And remember, I would love to hear from you. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook groups. Just search Creepy Chisme. Also find your girl on TikTok. We are at over 7,000 followers, possibly eight soon, and over 26K likes. I, yeah, wow. <laughs> I post a lot more creepy stories on there. A lot of facts, legends. You can always email me too. I want to hear your stories or just send me a hello like Brenda did at creepychisme for you. That's the number four, Y-O-U at gmail.com. And who knows, I might just share your email or story on the next episode. Happy Pride Month, y'all. I love you all. Gracias por escuchar y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, stay creepy and spread the chisme. Adios, mi gente. Thank you.